I'm Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. One of the great joys of having a podcast is the opportunity to sit down with people who are so smart, so talented, and so interesting. Joining me today is Stephen Dubner, the host of Freakonomics Radio, who himself talks to some of the smartest people on earth. Raised Catholic, Stephen discovered his family's Jewish past later in life, and his inquisitive spirit compelled him to return to Judaism. It's that same curiosity, his love of life and thirst for knowledge, that implores him to discover the hidden side of everything. Stephen, welcome to In These Times. Thank you, Ami. I'm uh, really flattered that you would have me. Are you kidding? I, it's such a great honor. I know, I, but you're my rabbi. Come on. <laughs> Let's be real. As we have spoken before, I knew you way before I knew you. <laughs> I was giving book reviews on your book, Turbulent Souls. This amazing. How were the reviews? Were they, were they positive reviews, negative reviews? Well, I, I didn't know you, so mm. I was teaching other people about this amazing author that I had not heard of before who wrote this unbelievably moving book, Turbulent Souls. I kept on coming back to it. I kept on thinking about it. And then I joined the synagogue. I've been here since 2004. One year, I think it was around 2010, the Dubners joined the synagogue. <laughs> and you know, I'm, I write letters to new members and I invite them to come and speak to me. And I look at your letter and I say, Stephen Dubner? Is that the same Stephen Dubner? Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. To be fair, there is a very well-known Stephen Dubner, who lives on <laughs> Long Island, who is a landscaper and who has his name on trucks, which is something I have not yet achieved in my life. And sometimes his trucks will be driving around Manhattan because he's big time landscaper and friends will snap a photo. Now he spells it slightly differently. He's a V Stephen. I'm a PH Stephen, but uh, I'm occasionally confused with the, the landscaper. <laughs> I have met him at a shul in, I believe, Sag Harbor, and it was a lovely gathering of the Stephen Dubners. So listen, the reason why I was so flattered that you and your family joined us when you had the full choice of all the Manhattan synagogues is because I was so moved and so admired by uh, not only your book, of course, but the story that you tell in the book, which is your return to Judaism. Could you give us an overview of how that happened? Just share with us about your parents who were born Jewish and converted separately and how you found your way back. Sure. I'll try to thumbnail it because it's a long story. It's a complicated story, which is why it became a book. I, I certainly didn't set out to write a book, including myself. Let me put it that way. I grew up in a home where one didn't go looking for attention or accolades, and if one got them, one just dismissed them with a, a shy, downward look and, and moved on to the next thing. So the fact that I ended up writing my first book, in fact, my second book, too, ab about myself and my family has always been a little bit uncomfortable for me because I don't like being the center of attention. I was really shy as a kid, but my dad was a journalist. My mom was actually a writer, not for a living. She was actually a much better writer than my dad. She was just more talented, but she didn't do that for a living. And writing and journalism were a big part of our home in the middle of nowhere, upstate New York, which I'll get to in a second, which is to explain how my folks got there. But when I was very young, I discovered journalism and thought it was amazing because it gave you not only permission, but it required you to ask people questions. And as a, a shy person who wanted to figure out how the world worked, it was just an amazing bonanza for me. 
Turbulent Souls, my first book, it was republished a bunch of years ago under a different title called Choosing My Religion, but it's the same book. And it essentially tells the story of my parents, Florence Greenglass, who became known as Veronica Dubner, and Solomon Dubner Dubner, who became known as Paul Dubner. And as you said, they independently of each other, before they met each other, both found their way through some twisty paths from Judaism in early, the first third of the 20th century in New York City to Catholicism. Okay, so that was the the big dramatic plot point, if one were thinking about this as a story. And they proceeded to meet, marry, go through a number of family schisms. It would be a gentle way to put it. But my mother's family, my father's family, they were very different from each other. My father's family was more old world, orthodox, living in Brownsville, still living, his parents' generation at least, still living as if they were in Poland. They came from a fairly uh, pleasant city called Pultusk, north of Poland, which, as pleasant as it was, was still um, one of the first places eradicated of Jews by the Nazis in 1939. My mother's family had come from a similar part of the world, but a little further east, and they were more an assimilating family. So they represented these sort of two versions of the American Jewish experience, one of which was assimilating much more. Anyway, my parents, having come from different backgrounds, ended up on the same path, bizarrely, which is going from Jewish to Catholic. Each of them, over the course of a few years, under the guidance of, in the case of my mother, a very strong mentor, a ballerina. My mother was a very good ballerina as a young woman and was heading in in that direction. Then, as I said, they met, married. My father was essentially cut off entirely from his family. My mother's family didn't cut her off, but they still thought she was nuts. My parents then started to live their Catholic life to the fullest by procreating and procreating and procreating. And by the time they ended with me, I was the last. There were eight. So I was the eighth and youngest. And by that time, they'd moved first from Brooklyn, then to Long Island, then to upstate New York, outside of a little town called Duanesburg, very rural. And so I grew up there as a devout Catholic little boy in a very devout Catholic family. I was an altar boy from the time I could walk practically. And I knew that there was this thing called Jewish that my mother and father had once been, but I didn't know what it was. And honestly, it had happened a long time ago. By the time I was born, my parents had been Catholic a long, long, long time. So they didn't hide from you their Jewish background. They just didn't find it particularly relevant to your upbringing. Is that right? Yeah, I would say that their Jewish background fell in with a number of things that weren't talked about very much in families back then, including emotions and feelings. I mean, we know it was a really different time. So no, but they did not hide it. My mom's mom lived for quite a while. She would come visit. There was always a lot of anxiety around that with her and my mother. But yeah, she was around once in a while. My father, he became a very devout, zealous Catholic, but still would, on his way home from work, in Schenectady once in a while would pick up a jar of Manischewitz gefilte fish and have it in the cupboard and, you know, would not always, but occasionally still have matzah in the pantry there. And he would have his little after mass gefilte nosh occasionally on Sunday mornings. I I love that image. I have to tell you, you wrote the book, I guess, in the late 90s, if I'm not mistaken. It sounds right. Yeah. It's over 20 years old. And I still remember the first time I read it. (laughs) I still remember that image. It's, It's an amazing image. Here you have Not somebody who drifted away from Judaism, but somebody who actively chose to be a devout 
Catholic, and he's still eating gefilte fish <laughs> and matzah during the springtime. And I think you had a passage in the book that he took you to a Yankees game, and he's eating a tongue sandwich. He did indeed. That yeah. is just so <laughs> Jewish, and the image is so vivid. And also, both of them would speak Yiddish to each other, especially when they wanted to communicate something they didn't want the kids to hear, but also singing. Like, both my parents were very musical. It was a very musical home. You know, I think my dad's favorite, I think his favorite song that he sang was probably by Mir Bistushain, and then second was My Yiddish Mama. In retrospect, you know, I guess it seems strange, but in retrospect, what I think is that they left Judaism for Catholicism, not because they hated Judaism, not because they were anti-Semitic, not because they disliked their families. They left because they each felt in very different ways. And this is why I wrote a book about it. I was trying to understand it because it didn't make sense to me. But they both felt in very different ways that they had been filled with the spirit of Christianity and all that that implied. For both my mother and my father, I think the thing that united them actually was the role of the Virgin Mary, of the Mother Mary, more than Jesus, actually. There was something about the maternal embrace of Mary that, among many things, made them feel that it was worth it to go against everything that their families and their families' families, generation to generation, on and on and on, had done, because they knew it wasn't a little thing or a small thing. They didn't leave it for nothing. They left it for what they saw as a, a larger thing. And to, to their credit, they both of them, to the end of their lives, their devotion to Catholicism, they remained devoted. So they each came to this journey separately, and they met as pursuing Catholics or investigating Catholicism. Yeah, my, my mother had already converted to Catholicism at the time they met. This was during the Second World War. She was, you know, she was in New York. She lived in New York, was in New York City her whole life, really, until they moved upstate. My dad, this was, uh, he was stationed in the Pacific during the Second World War. He was a medic. He was back on leave. He went to a dance at a church right up the street from where you are at Stephen Wise, there was a party or dance for servicemen. And my father came and met with the priest. And he's, by this point, my father had undergone a non-denominational Christian baptism overseas, thought he wanted to be a Catholic, but he wasn't sure. He um, had some more questioning and reading to do. He read an awful lot. And so he said to the priest who was running this dance, you know, Father, have you ever heard of a creature like me, a Jew who wants to become a Catholic? And the priest who was running the dance said, have I got the girl for you? Because my mother had become a Catholic, had been baptized in that church um, not long before, maybe within the last year or so. My mom was on the Upper West Side because her ballet teacher ran her little institute up there. That's why my mom hung out on the Upper West Side. And so, yeah, my mom and dad met. They obviously had a spark. My father went back overseas. They wrote letters. He converted fully to Catholicism. Then when he moved back, they ended up marrying. Are they the turbulent souls that you refer to in the uh, book, or is it all of you together? I think it ended up being all of us, myself included. As I noted earlier, this was a story I had not intended to be a character in. This story, this book began as an oral history project that I wanted to give to my siblings as a Christmas present one year. <laughs> 
So, you know, I was, like I mentioned, the youngest of a big family. We grew up with very little money. When I was, I guess I was in college at this time when I started this or maybe just out, I think I had even, you know, less than zero dollars. And so it was always a challenge to get Christmas presents for the family. I liked writing. I'd already been doing a lot of writing. I was also a musician at the time. I was in a band. That was kind of my first career Oh, yeah, that's right. The previous few years, I had given my siblings tapes of our band, copies of demo tapes we were making. For Christmas presents. And they hated them so much. I mean, Can't you buy me uh, some kind of record player or something? Or even like a cardboard box, something useful <laughs> instead of this. I was giving them that gift for a couple of years because, again, it cost nothing. I had it. And, and I thought, you know, that's not a great gift. And what I thought I would do is interview my mother because I did love to interview people. I liked writing. I liked history. And I thought, you know, I don't really know the story of my mom and dad converting. I just don't know the basics of the story. I don't know anything. Everything we've been talking about now, I knew none of that. That all came from a couple years of interviewing and then reporting and doing research in other areas, talking to people other than my mom. My dad also had died when I was young. So... There was a twofold impulse there. One is to learn and understand the story of their conversions, which were two, not one. And number two, to learn more about my father. I barely knew him, you know, as a very young boy when he died. Mm. And so I began with these interviews with my mother. She had relocated to South Florida by then, yet another vestigial Jewish trait, the migration to South Florida, along with the others. And... Yeah, it began a series of long interviews that were often a little bit more fraught with motions that I had not expected to encounter. And over time, you know, five, six, maybe eight, ten years, really, it became a project, a research project, but then a lived project. Because after I stopped playing music, I stayed in New York. I got exposed to all different kinds of Jewish ideas and Jewish people, Jewish teachers and so on. And so by the time I was writing this book, I had become what I thought would be a minor character, but I ended up being a little bit more major because by the time the book was really underway, I was living a Jewish life and no longer either a lapsed Catholic life or an active Catholic life. Mm. I just want to emphasize all of the family history that you're relating to us, you learned all of that as an adult already, practically none of that was given to you as a child. Yeah. You didn't know your family backgrounds or... I didn't know their names. I didn't know the names of my grandparents. I was a little kid. I didn't even think about the fact that my father had had grandparents because since he died when I was 10, it's like, you know, a psychologist might say, well, when that kind of disappearance happens, you adapt or you cope by being afraid of attachment or being accustomed to loss, all these different things. And I'm not saying those were not true for me, but one thing that also became true for me was just a, I wanted to exercise a curiosity of finding out more. Yeah. And so that was a lot of what drove this as well. So it, it's, it's very impressive. I mean, it's obvious it comes through the amount of not only just time and energy and intellectual energy and research that you poured into this exercise, but uh, I would venture to say also, you know, the emotional energy that you invested in trying to discover the roots of your family and through that, who you are or an increased dimension of who you are. Yeah, it, it was a journey in the truest sense when we think about journeys in history and literature and so on. I mean, that's why we love to read, right? When... <laughs> 
when you're reading about Odysseus or whoever, you feel it. And mm -hmm. when you go through a journey yourself of any sort, and we've all, I mean, there's nobody talking right now or listening right now who hasn't gone through some kind of journey. As you said, it's a large investment of your everything, of your intellect and your emotion, time, money often for many people in different ways. But I will say this, it wasn't a choice. It just kind of happened. It was a thing that happened to me over the course of, I guess, from the time I started interviewing my mother until the time I published Turbulent Souls. I'd have to do a little math, but I'm guessing it was about 10 to 12 years. And I was doing other things along the way. I quit music. I went to grad school. I started working in journalism, but my mind was always in that gear. And then my heart and soul, and then becoming enthusiastic about and intrigued by Judaism itself, mm -hmm. you know, the religious, the spiritual, the musical, the historical, all those components, it just became part of who I was. And so it was never work. <laughs> it was never like, oh, I gotta, I gotta go weed the garden now in order to get the vegetables. It was just the journey that I was on. And, you know, I would argue I'm still on. And, and I would argue that every Jew or everybody, whether they're born into something or not, you know, we're always on that journey. You put all this energy into a religious quest or a personal quest, some kind of odyssey to explore deeper who you are. And of course, as a rabbi, your story is always deeply moving to me because we're such a small people and people who Judaism either was hidden from them, and I've met many of those people as well in our congregation, mm. or people who rediscover their Judaism and come back to the Jewish fold, is always a very, very moving story for me as a rabbi and as a Jew. And I think you wrote in your book that it was instinct that brought you back to Judaism, and that too was very, very moving to me. But in addition to that, and I suppose even the reprinting of your book, your story is also a, a story in general about religious seekers and generally about people who are searching for themselves. What are the lessons that you learned for all of those listeners out there who are on some kind of quest? Mm. Well, first of all, I'm a big believer in free will. So I believe that we can and should shape the direction and magnitude of our own experiences. I, th again, this is a personal belief. It's, it's not provable, by the way, nor is the other end of the argument. But there's a phrase I think about almost every day that was taught to me by a, a mentor and friend of mine who was a big part of my Jewish journey, a fellow named Ivan Cronenfeld. And Ivan was a character himself, much larger than life character, died a few years ago now. He... Among the many things he did, uh, he was an actor, a performer for a while, then he taught acting for many years. He taught from a tradition that came from Stella Adler, the great acting teacher, who taught her method, primarily derived from Stanislavski, Konstantin, I believe, Stanislavski. And so it was very rabbinic teaching. In fact, really, Ivan was my first rabbi in a way. He'd be the first to admit that as, as learned as he was in Judaism, he was not close to a rabbi. So he also brought me to many, many rabbis over the first several years. The tradition that Ivan taught to performers, mostly actors, but he liked to have people like me, writers and doctors and others in his class, because he saw it all the same. He saw a creative life, living an honest, creative life as all the same, whether you're performing, writing or whatnot. 
And one of the many maxims that he taught from Stella Adler via Stanislavski was your choice is your talent. And it took me a long time to really appreciate and understand that. But talent is one of these things that we, I believe, misconstrue at our own peril. Choice, however, we all have. And so you can choose to make good decisions, bad decisions, decisions of great gravity and import and decisions where you're spending a lot of time on on trivial things and so on. And so to anyone seeking out a way forward or a way to connect with their path, I think that's the most important part is to realize that you have the choice about how you want to approach that, who you want to speak with. I'll be honest with you, my experience with discovering what Jewishness and Judaism really are was very satisfying in part because I did approach it as a journalist, which means you ask an awful lot of questions. You don't worry if you sound childish. You don't worry if you say, I don't understand that. Explain that to me. What do you mean by that? Why would so-and-so do such and such? How does that intersect with or go against the religious thinking in your family and so on? The only other advice I would give in this case is proceed with humility, which I would give in any case. And also, this is the one thing that I've always been leery of, is be leery of the fundamentalist impulse. It strikes me that no one is more zealous about the thing that they are than someone who used to be the opposite of that thing. And so I see that a lot in in conversion. I don't mm-hmm. mean just religious conversion, but mm-hmm. people who, who switch political positions, you know, when you leave one position for what seems like the opposite, it's natural to cut off the other argument. And I'm a big believer in, like I said, free will. I'm a big believer in heterogeneity. I'm a big believer in trying to understand the perspective of other people and still maintain your values and your ethics, but not discount them just because they're different from yours. And I think that's always going to be a little bit of a temptation and even a danger in a religious journey. Stephen, you're a deep thinker. You've made a career of understanding how the world works. You've sold millions of books. You've got a radio uh, program. You reach millions of people. What do you think about the state of American life right now? Uh, You're starting with a small question, huh? (laughs) (laughs) How are we doing? Things have changed so much in our day-to-day lives since the pandemic, the way we go to work, how we spend our money, even the issues we care about. <laughs> what do you make of all this change? You think we're in a good place now? Okay. That, that, I mean, it's a really tough question. And I would say if you take 100 people and look for the most qualified to answer that set of excellent questions, I would be like 98, okay? <laughs> so just, just <laughs> there might be a couple people worse than me, but I'll, I'll share with you my thoughts on this. Are we in a good place? You know, if you look at a lot of the measurables, the observables, right? So social scientists, and that's, I hang out a lot with social scientists, a lot of economists, but psychologists, sociologists, and so on. Economists all, uh, particularly like to talk about the observables and the unobservables. And most of us tend to pay a lot more attention to the observables because they're observable and they're easier to measure. Mm-hmm. Unobservables, however, are really important because those include motivation, emotion, prejudice, all these things, and good characteristics too, all different kinds of virtues as well. 
If you look, however, at the observables, which is what we tend to look at when we're thinking historically and from a macro perspective, yeah, we wrote about it a little bit in our first book, Freakonomics. There have since been several books about just this topic. If you look at the things like violent crime, poverty generally, the amount of war going on, et cetera, et cetera, the big, big things that we really care about, civilization has continued to improve. Within that, however, it's always going to be a lot of downside and there's always going to be a lot of suffering because that's what human life is. About that, I have two things to say. One is it's one of my favorite things about the Jewish tradition, which is this notion of tikkun olam. It's almost the mission of a life is to leave your corner of the world a bit tidier, a bit happier, a bit safer when you leave than when you came into it. And the notion that you are driven to improve, to fix, is an incredibly powerful human motivator. And it is the reason to complain. Like, I'm one of those people, I hate hearing people just complain when people are standing in a line at the airport or whatever, and they're oh, taking so long. And the reason I hate that is because it's kind of useless. Maybe it makes them feel better. I don't know. But like, complain about the big stuff. This is the way I feel about swearing, too. I don't like casual vulgarity or casual obscenity because it, it cheapens it. But when something is truly vulgar, use it then. So yeah. I feel that if you are driven to actually leave the world slightly better than when you came in, that you inevitably go looking for the things that are lacking, for the areas that are diminished, for people that are suffering and so on. So that's one component of it. The other is that the way media works now, it's just much more powerful. It, media has more leverage, more speed, and more reach than at any time in history by a long shot, by a factor of many. Therefore, we are all attuned to the bad stuff. Moreover, what we can learn from psychologists is that they refer to this bias as the power of bad, which is that... We pay more attention to negative things and negative things essentially weigh more for us than do positive things. If I were to reduce it to a very simple scenario, let's say an interpersonal relationship, maybe between you and a friend or you and a partner or a spouse, if you do something or say something that's hurtful or bad, it will take about four to five, four, let's call it four and a half positive parallel activities or statements to repair that wound. That's the way our brains on average process negativity versus positivity. A good thing happens. Yeah, nice, fine. A bad thing happens. Oh my goodness, that's terrible. And so I think what we're seeing right now is a bit of a perfect storm where there's plenty of real bad news and then also we accentuate the negative in a way that we never have before. Mm -hmm. So I don't mean to be Pollyannish. There's a lot of stuff going on right now that's really terrible. If you look back in history, was there a lot more that was even more terrible? I would say on average, yes. Anti-Semitism seems to be pretty particularly bad even in America where we'd thought we'd not be having these kind of conversations now. Was it worse in history? Well, plainly, it was quite, quite bad. Does that mean we should dismiss it now? Absolutely not. But a little perspective, I think, can go a long way.
I agree. I'm familiar with the arguments. If you take a look at wars and uh, violence and freedom, more people are living free now than ever before. There are fewer wars. Literacy. Literacy is a huge one. I mean, health, yeah. right? People are living substantially longer than they did even 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. In every measure in this way, life, you, could, you can certainly make the case that life is better for more people. But it still raises the question, are we, do we feel worse now than, say, 30 years ago? I mean, there's this sense that in America and around the world, things are worse when all of the factors that you cited a few minutes ago were also present 30 years ago. So is it social media, do you think? You talked about the speed and the overwhelming force of social media. Is there something about the way we're wired now in modern times that kind of leads us to think, oh, things are always worse? It your question makes me think of, I think it was Bill Clinton who, when he was trying to weasel out of something, he said, it depends what the meaning of is is. And I would throw that back to you and say, it depends what the meaning of we is. Do we feel worse? So the fact is, is that, you know, let's say rich Westerners, which by definition, just about everybody who's listening to a podcast from Stephen Wise is. We were born in a place and time that has been remarkable in terms of prosperity, okay? If you want to say, is it worse now? Are we worse off than we were 30 years ago? Or do we feel worse about it? I would say that probably there are a lot of people who do, for sure, absolutely, for a, a variety of reasons that we've talked about a little bit now. But when we say we, that makes me think, first of all, Let's take the median 50-year-old, 30-year-old, 10-year-old person in India or China or wherever. Are they worse off than they were 30 years ago? Are you kidding me? That is a, I don't want to say it's a miracle of prosperity, but if you want to consider yourself a, a progressive, thoughtful, loving person, part of that is you care as much about other people's success and health and happiness as your own. Now, we know that nobody cares about other people as much as themselves and their family. That seems to be almost humanly impossible. But we also know that's part of our progressive loving code, which is to care about others a lot. And so if you do embrace that code even a little bit, you have to say, well, you know, is it true that American democratic capitalism and throw in another couple frameworks there to describe where we've been for the past bunch of decades, if it's got noisier, coarser, more annoying to many people? Yeah, I think that's probably true. Is it also true, however, that the freedom and openness and dynamism that account for those things have also contributed a lot to the prosperity and happiness of many, 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 many other people around the world. I think that's also true. So I think this is why, like, look, economists are weird people by their nature. It's a strange discipline because it's a social science, but it's also extraordinary mathy. And so the number of people who end up in there, if you look at them on the Venn diagram, it's a very thin part of where the two circles would intersect. But one thing that I love about how economists think is their first instinct is always to do some kind of cost benefit analysis and say, okay, this thing that is really agitating me right now, that's really making me angry, that I think is really terrible, that is the cost of what action, of what input, of what cause. Once I've identified that cause and I want to say, well, what are the benefits of that cause? And 
is this just a case where I personally don't get to share those benefits and I'm feeling all the cost? Or is it the case that a lot of other people are getting to enjoy those benefits more than me and I'm jealous? I think that is a, a useful way to think about the world because my problem with focusing on and accentuating the negativity and getting caught up in the negativity is it can kill your spirit. And there's a lot of research that shows that one of the most powerful ways to fix anything is to be hopeful and optimistic about it. And I'm not saying you should be Pollyannish or optimistic about everything all the time, but if you persuade yourself that the world is garbage and it's getting worse every day and it's hopeless, I mean, look, plainly, people are thinking that way. There's evidence for it all over. I'm a big believer in the fact that most people on this planet are interested in living a good life for themselves and their families and wish the same for others. I'm a big believer that human innovation and technology continue to provide lots of challenges, but also lots of benefits. This these debates, we're just starting to hear a lot now about artificial intelligence in the in the form of chat GPT, this AI engine where you can mm -hmm. ask it a question and it'll give you an answer. You know, immediately the news coverage is, oh, my goodness, this means that everybody will cheat on their exams at school. <laughs> really? That's that's your first response, as opposed to how about, oh, I wonder if I can get it to help us interpret ancient texts. I wonder if we can use AI to do a better job interpreting medical imaging. I wonder if we, you know, on and on and on and on. So I don't mean to be overly optimistic, but I do feel optimism is an incredibly powerful force. You know, I resonate very much with what you say. It's what I uh, try and explain to the Jewish community as well. You know, we're a famously argumentative people. <laughs> you might have picked up on that on your search even. In fact, that you, you continued the search is a testament to your strong personality. I fit right in, honestly. <laughs> but with respect to uh, all of the problems in the Jewish community, including, as you say, the uptick of anti-Semitism, even in this country, which we need to pay careful attention to, if you take a look at the Jewish condition, if you know Jewish history, it's never been better. There are more Jews who are more educated, more affluent, more literate, more influential, more well-respected mm -hmm. than at any time in uh, Jewish history, for sure, since the destruction of the ancient kingdom 2,000 years ago. And we now have a Jewish state. Generation after generation prayed for the restoration of Jewish mm -hmm. sovereignty. We're living in that era, despite all the problems. I mean, in, in a sense, you kind of pray to have those problems rather than the problems that the Jewish people uh, endured over the past 2,000 years. And yeah. even when you talk about complaining, you know, there's, there's something very fundamental about the <laughs> Jewish outlook on the world. This idea of complaining by looking at something and saying, I can improve that. Yeah. is, at the end of the day, an extremely optimistic view on human nature mm -hmm. and our role in human nature. Because unlike some other religious philosophies, you know, where basically the human task is to endure and to reach the next phase of existence, which is eternal life, mm. and there's basically nothing we can do. For Judaism, the Messianic era is ushered in. It's, it's, it's forced into history by what we do in history. That is, Kafka actually came up with a phrase that was just so brilliant and so Jewish. He said, the Messiah will come a day after the Messiah is no longer needed. Mm. Right? <laughs> and so that's kind of, that kind of encapsulates the Jewish perspective of looking at a problem, 
solving the problem, optimistic that, in fact, it's within human capacity to solve this problem. Now, interesting, as much as I agree, I'd say 99.9% with what you just said, my instinct, of course, is to look for how I can challenge it. Because that's what we do, right? See, that's, I think, one of the differences between a conversation in a Jewish context and a conversation in a non-Jewish context. A conversation in a non-Jewish context is always like, hey, did you see that thing? Oh, yeah. I did see that thing. Wasn't it great? Yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, wasn't it fantastic? It was just great. The, the two Jewish guys, hey, did you see that thing? Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> what did you think? Well, no, I, I thought it was pretty good, but you know, it didn't really do this or that. Well, why do you think it should have done that? You know, <laughs> that's the point. <laughs> you know, it's funny you bring this up. When I was, gosh, just neck deep in this, my journey to go sort of back to to living a Jewish life, even though you know I hadn't lived one before. I was spending a lot of time with my mother and who was by now toward the end of her life. I was visiting her in Florida and she was frustrated with my return to Judaism because primarily because she as a deep believing Catholic who knew her Catholicism very well, but did not really know all the ins and outs of what the Second Vatican Council had produced. Had she known that, she would have known that it would have been okay, right? Because that did the church's view did change. But at mm. the time, her thinking was, she's going to die, she's going to go to heaven, and only Catholics go to heaven, and therefore, if I'm no longer Catholic, that she'll never see me again once she dies. Mm -hmm. That was her thought process. And she literally believed that. Yes, I believe so. I mean, we talked about it not quite as directly as I just put it, but quite directly. And so that was, I would say, her chief frustration with my turn to or return to Judaism. First of all, you have to understand, I was, as the last kid in the family, the fact that I didn't become a priest was particularly troublesome to her because <laughs> you're not really considered a great Catholic mom if you have a bunch of kids, if you don't have at least one priest. And believe me, none of my older brothers were priest <laughs> material <laughs> on a variety of great people, but not priest <laughs> material. OK. And I was a pretty pious kid or at least a very obedient kid. And so I didn't become a Catholic. And then I became a lapsed Catholic and then I became Jewish. And that was problematic for her, like I said in part because she believed in the view of the afterlife that I just described. As we're in the middle of this contention, I remember I was visiting her down in Florida and she was really upset about some local matter. I don't remember if it was it involved the city council or the school board or maybe even like the homeowners association, something that was really frustrating to her. And she was like, well, you know, I'm going to pray on it. And that was kind of the end of it. Mm. And what I didn't say to her out of respect, because I loved my mother and I respected my mother. What I wanted to say was, mom, you know, pray if you want. Great. But how about like organize a committee and get in there and fix the darn thing? I don't mean to say this is how Judaism is versus how Catholicism is. It's not I don't mean to be that reductive. But it was a frustration to me that there was so much value placed on, you know, not only literally the afterlife, but the rewards for living a pious life as opposed to the rewards for the actual good deeds. And believe me, my mother did more good deeds than you and me and probably everybody we know combined. Mm -hmm. She was a deeply, deeply kind and loving person who was really good to everyone. And she helped a lot of people in a number of ways. So it wasn't about a selfishness, but it was about 
I don't want to call it a small mindedness, but it was not the agitation of the Jewish condition that says, no, 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 no. This cannot stand. We need to find a way to address this as opposed to saying, hey, God, if you have the time, take a look at this thing, would you? Okay. Yeah. Or this is the way it is and there's not much we can do about it. So we're in the third year of this pandemic. Have you given some thought or have you spoken with researchers as well? And what do you think are some of the lasting impacts of these three years? And I don't think the pandemic is really over, although people are, you know, kind of trying to put it in the back recesses of their mind. Looking back 10, 15, 20 years from now, how do you think we'll view these years of the pandemic? Well, I think, you know, tragically, a lot of people died. A lot of people suffered. A lot of people lost their connection to their communities. I think any reasonable person will have to tally up all that all that negativity and suffering. Maybe this is the optimist in me or the, the silver lining person in me, but you also see some upsides that will come out of it. We've learned new ways to work and communicate and, and so on. I think the biggest result though, and this is neither a positive nor a negative, but I think it's a bit of a cautionary tale. I think the pandemic and not just the pandemic, but the shutdown and the being cut off from our normal communities and routines. I think what it did is it, it revealed everyone's true character. Hmm. And that's a little, that can be a little (laughs) scary. You know what I mean? And so I think in a way, the pandemic has shown us to each of us individually, who we really are, what we need, what we want, what we're capable of doing for ourselves and for other people. And I think it's a real gut check. And so I've learned a lot about myself from it. For me, the difficult part is taking what I've learned and translating that into change. One thing I've learned is that I really like being on my own. The reason I'm a writer is because I'm very, very, very happy working on my own for hours and hours, sometimes days, sometimes weeks. Even though I have a family and friends and all that, I love the aloneness. I learned that aloneness in moderation, okay, but boy, oh boy, it's very easy to pull back to an unhealthy degree. Especially when it's forced, right? When you actually don't want to be alone. Exactly. This goes back to something you touched on earlier about the partisanship and the separation. I think that has been exacerbated for a number of reasons. It's interesting. This is one of the unintended consequences of the work from home revolution or the hybrid work revolution. It turns out that the workplace is one of the few areas in life that most of us routinely go where we encounter people who really think very differently from us. But it turns out that the workplace, you'll often intersect with people who are different socioeconomic status, different generation and so on. And we learn in the workspace, just as children are supposed to learn in school to kind of what they call socialize. Without that, when we're left on our own to work from home and only communicate with the people that we approve of their thinking already, that are just like us, that we self-select into that community. I think that's not a good thing. And I think there will be a lot of other similar unintended consequences that are revealed over time. Some bad, but again, some good as well. Mm -hmm. So that leads me to my final question. Everybody today seems angry. Is it just that people are more angry and they're (laughs) in fact not that angry? We're canceling each other and Do you think that's a real phenomenon? Is it worse than what it was, say, 10, 20 years ago? And if so, then give us some three steps that we can do to to make a difference. (laughs) 
even if I felt good about giving advice, I'm not the kind of person you'd want to get your advice from. All right. I just want to give you those caveats. It is true. If you look at the data now, these data are kind of squirrely. This is where economists and people like physicists and chemists and biologists are a little bit different from psychologists and sociologists and so on. Economists within the social sciences really prefer to work with data that reflects actual activity or actual choices made, whereas a lot of the surveys that we read about that get turned into articles in the New York Times and so on are based on surveys, which is what's used in psychology, sometimes in economics, but in psychology and so on. If you have a shul full of congregants on a Friday night and say, how many of you do not consider yourself an altruistic person? <laughs> There's not going to be a lot of hands raised, I'm guessing. OK, but if you were to follow every one of those people home and follow them for the next 10 years, you know, you might see a little bit of lack of altruism. Maybe I'm not maybe not at Stephen Wise, but maybe. No, I heard it happens in other congregations. Not <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that was very unaltruistic of you. So it does happen in Stephen Wise. Okay? <laughs> Even if only among the rabbis. But this is what economists call the difference between declared preferences, what I say I believe in, how I say I will vote, how I say I will spend my resources and so on, and revealed preferences, which is what you actually do. Yes, people in the U.S. definitely feel angrier, more insecure, and this goes across generations as well. However, a couple caveats, I would say that, again, we are not the world. There is a phrase in social sciences called weird, which stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich and democratic. Weird people, which are mostly college undergrads, <clears throat> are the people on whom so much of our current research-based knowledge is derived. Those are the people who enroll in these studies. If you look across the world, you'll find that preferences and decisions and choices are very, very, very different. So I think that when we ask a question like you're asking now, which is, are we angrier than we were 20, 30 years ago? If the we is Americans, American Jews maybe, American Jews in New York City, I think the answer is probably yes a little bit. I think if you think about the human community, I think you probably come up with a slightly different answer. You ask for three pieces of advice. I'm only going to come up with one. And this is not even a real piece of advice, but it's an insight from researchers that I really like a lot. There are these people who study what's called social trust. And it means kind of what it sounds like when you're in a place. Let's imagine you are a parent with a young child or maybe just a person with a dog and you need to go inside a shop and you need to leave your child or your dog with someone. And there's a couple people standing there on the sidewalk. Would you trust them for three minutes? Hey, would you mind watching my ex while I go inside? That's kind of one way to think about social trust. Do you have faith that the people around you that you don't know in a social construct are generally honorable, decent people? Okay. The social trust numbers in the U.S. were higher than they are now in the 60s. They've gone mostly down, up and down a little bit, but mostly down. Our numbers aren't the worst in the world, but they're not the best. There are places in the world where the numbers are higher. You know, no surprise, Scandinavia. Scandinavia is the answer to everything, it seems. Australia, they're higher. Some of Western Europe and so on. But if you look at what 
causes social trust to rise and fall? The answers to what causes it to fall are not surprising at all. The types of dissension that we're now experiencing in this country really do take away from social trust. If, however, you look at what causes social trust to rise, and this is, I guess, the optimist in me, this is what I was really interested in learning about. It turns out that there are some institutions that are really good at increasing social trust. The university is one. Why? The argument is that you are coming together with people that you don't know that come from different backgrounds to embark on a sort of shared mission, but you're allowed to thrive within your individual track. The military is another one that's sort of similar to the university. You're coming together, different backgrounds, et cetera. Sports teams are a fantastic generator of social trust. So I think the biggest thing that we can all do is to try to look at our own lives. And this is difficult the older you get, because the older you get, the narrower we tend to get in our interests and our preferences. There was a, a nice study done by Robert Sapolsky years ago who found that by the age of 35, most of us will never again try a new type of cuisine, a new type of music. We don't want to go anywhere we haven't been and so on. And that's a terrible thing because we humans, I believe, especially within the Jewish tradition, always want to be exploring, investigating, growing, expanding. How can I make myself better, stronger? How can I make other people better, happier, and so on? And so I think the one piece of advice I would give is just to get out there in some way, virtual, real, whatever, and start connecting with people who you think have nothing to do with you, people you think you may have nothing in common with, even people that you think may actively dislike you for some reason. Reach out, try to make those connections. And I think the best way to try to make the world a little bigger is to make your own circle a little bigger and hope that it's contagious. Thank you for taking the time. Keep writing, keep thinking, keep reaching all those people with your optimism and your very penetrating and searching mind. I thank you for having me. I enjoy always speaking with you. And I have to say, you know, you didn't ask, but the reason we came to Stephen Wise was it was time for us to find a good Hebrew school for the kids. And Stephen Wise is a great Hebrew school. The reason we stayed is because of you. <laughs> <laughs> I really admire your leadership and your intellectual leadership, your insights. I love your sermons. And so this was really an honor for me to get to come back at you a little bit. I really love this guy, Stephen Dubner. First, I love his personality, his brilliance, his amazing writing talent, and his insatiable desire to understand. He has taught the millions of people who read his books and follow his podcast a new way of thinking, or at least a new, fiercer discipline of how to approach and contend with the central dilemmas of our lives. Look deeper. Be more reflective. Try to find the unspoken and less obvious connections. Fundamentally, Stephen Dubner is in love with life, he is endlessly inquisitive and fascinated by all things. And he's this way in person as well. Altogether charming, patient, intellectually probing, and modest. With all the knowledge Stephen has acquired, he is a modest man, humble about what he knows and doesn't know. This is typical of the genuinely learned. The more we learn, the more we realize how much more there is to learn. As the essayist Montagna wrote, 
People are like stalks of wheat. They rise high, straight, and proud as long as they are empty. But when the stalks are full, swollen with grain, in their ripeness, they grow humble and lower their horns. Montagna could have been thinking about Stephen. The more we fill our souls with information and knowledge, the more humble we should become about this infinite mystery we call life. It is so common for people in all disciplines, including religion, especially religion, to assure us of their perfect knowledge. They know everything, but unfortunately, that's all they know. They don't know anything else. They know everything about the economy, except when it collapses. They know everything about warfare, except when defeated. They know everything about the human mind, except when they don't. W.H. Auden said about psychoanalysis, Today, thanks to Freud, the man on the street knows that when he thinks a thing, the thing he thinks is not the thing he thinks he thinks, but only the thing he thinks he thinks he thinks. Mark Twain, another one of those Americans who constantly strove to look deeper into the meaning of life, wrote, I was born modest, not all over, but in spots. Stephen Dubner is modest all over. That's who he is. Second, as a rabbi, I love Stephen's story and life's journey. I do not presume to speak for him, only for me, but I was so moved by turbulent souls because I view Judaism primarily as a civilization. We are not merely a religion in the conventional Western sense. Jews are a family. Judaism is the faith and civilization of the Jewish family. We are a people. It is this principle more than any other that distinguishes us and makes us who we are. As Stephen described in his book, what determined the Catholicism of his parents was faith, a gospel of beliefs. What determines a Jew is family. Were we born into or later joined the Jewish family? Of course, Jews have faith too. We believe many things that forever changed human civilization. But it is not our beliefs that determine our Jewish status it is our Jewish status that determines our beliefs. And what we mean by family is not a family of the spirit binding like-minded philosophers and believers. What we mean is that we are a real family of flesh and blood. Like all families, the Jewish family is bound to those who live now, those who lived before, and those who will follow us. For me, one of the key sentences in Turbulent Souls is when Stephen writes, was it love that inspired my return to Judaism? No. I told myself not love. It was something smaller than love. It was instinct. My noisy soul had demanded that I follow the flow of my blood. I believe this as well, that there is something basic, earthy, instinctual about the Jewish family. And it moves me deeply when I meet people who never even knew that they were Jewish, but are mysteriously and powerfully somehow drawn back to our people. And here's how I know that the spirit of Judaism was always in Stephen. He spoke about complaining. He emphasized that some complaints are welcome. He articulated the classic Jewish approach to kvetching. Now, apparently, other people complain, not only the Jews. I haven't seen it personally, but I've been told that from time to time, Gentiles also complain. But you know what? Even if they do, Jews do it the best. At the shores of the Red Sea, caught between the approaching Egyptian army and the deep blue waters, the Israelites complain in a way that only Jews could truly appreciate. That's how you know we're the same people all these millennia later. We use the same language. The Israelites shout, Moses, there weren't enough graves in Egypt that you had to bring us out here to die. That's something my grandmother would have said in salty Yiddish. And even after our ancestors crossed the sea, never again to be enslaved by the Egyptians, 
They continue to complain about everything, even the food. There's no meat to eat, they whine. We remember the fish that we ate for free in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Some of you might remember that 1984 presidential campaign when Walter Mondale released an ad accusing Gary Hart of vapidity and used the slogan, where's the beef? See, that's how Gentiles complain. When they say, where's the beef? They mean, explain yourself. Where's the substance of your argument? Our ancestors literally meant we are sick of this bland desert food. Give us pastrami and rye. The wilderness broke the Israelites down so that they could be sent forth on a new morning, a new people, a nation devoted to freedom, righteousness, and justice. That's why we still complain and argue incessantly. We care. If we didn't care, we wouldn't fetch. We would develop a philosophy of acceptance and resignation. But that is not Judaism. We believe that the world can be different. We are prepared to get into the arena and do our part to make things better. We argue so much about even little things because Judaism always emphasized this world over the world to come. The heavens are for God, wrote the psalmist. The earth was given to us. We want to make things better in the here and now. We do not consider our earthly lives mere way stations to the next world. That's why it seems that every little injustice, every little unfairness bothers us. Our task is... As described in the Aleinu prayer we recite daily, to repair the world under the sovereignty of God. Until next time, this is In These Times.